Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. He's just saying you don't need very much faith to accomplish great things for him, and you don't need a lot of faith to forgive because you're being forgiven all the time, and he's commanding you to forgive, and, and so he says, they're saying, hey, we need more faith, increase our faith. He's saying, hey, if you have mustard seed faith, little teeny bit of faith, but in him, and you demonstrate that faith by obedience to him, Happy Thanksgiving and thank you for joining us today. I'm truly thankful for each and every one of you. In today's broadcast, we begin a new two-part study from Pastor Sam entitled, Forgiven, Cleansed, and Prepared. We're in Luke chapter 17 for this study and we'll look at the entire chapter. Jesus is teaching on sin, faith and duty, he cleanses 10 lepers, and talks of the coming kingdom, all in a day's work. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke 17, title of our study this morning, Forgiven, Cleansed, and Prepared. Luke 17, Forgiven, Cleansed, and Prepared. We saw way back in chapter 15, and this will continue well until Jesus gets his disciples aside for that Passover dinner right prior to his arrest and crucifixion. Jesus is talking to his disciples, ministering to the apostles who he's separated out from the many disciples. The tax collectors and sinners are there. The, uh, the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are there. He's surrounded continually with people who were pressing in and listening to him. Some were motivated by a sincere desire to know the will of God. They sensed that, hey, this man is unlike any other. There were others who were there just trying to ensnare him and trap him. And, and well, he continually goes from one group to the other group, to this group, to that group. And as he does, well, everyone in the circle gets to hear and listen. Now, that's where we come in. We're getting to look at all of it and consider all of it and hopefully learn from and apply it. Well, he said to his disciples, so they're the target of this particular portion. It is impossible that no offenses should come. I did a little word study and that word impossible. Turns out it means impossible. So Jesus is saying you can count on offenses. The word actually means stumbling. In other words, people rather intentionally or unintentionally do stumble other people. So he's saying that's going to happen. But woe to him through whom they do come. I think that's a warning to us that we wouldn't take it lightly and say, well, you know, I used to sin, I still sin, I sin less. I'm not sinless, but I do sin less. The problem is I can never take that attitude. I need to realize that when I stumble, when I sin, I'm setting a trap for someone else who's going to trip over me in the process, as it were. Well, woe to him through who they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. This is one of many things Jesus has to say that are beyond troubling. I mean, this sounds more like the Godfather than the son of our father and God. A millstone around your neck. Well, what he's saying is here's how bad sin is. Here's how bad it is to stumble a, a little brother or a little sister in the Lord or a little brother or little sister who's your natural offspring or, or sibling. And, and so uh, bottom line is he, he's saying 
we need to make sure we're not responsible for stumbling other people. Take heed to yourself. That's what he means by that. In verse three, make sure that's not you. Then he says, if your brother sins against you. And that word if, interesting word. It really should say since. I'm not disagreeing with Jesus, but I'm just saying when they translated this, they had a choice. They could say uh, when your brother sins against you, it would have been completely accurate to the Greek text. In other words, if you don't have any physical brothers, welcome to the family. We'll take care of this for you. Uh, you know, you will be sinned against. Not only will you sin, but people will sin against you. And he tells us now how we're to deal with one another, our spiritual family, when we're sinned against. First of all, he says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Now, some of you do this naturally. Hey, you're like, hey, I'm up for that. I love that. I'm down with that or up for that or whatever they're saying these days. The bottom line is, is if this comes natural to you, then you're going to have to be careful because you're supposed to be doing this in love with a view towards restoration, rebuke, yes, but always with the eye on, hey, I want to restore this relationship. And, and so it says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If you don't, by the way, well, you'll stew on what he's done or what she's done. And that will cause you problems and other people around you problems. Not only will you be disobeying the Lord, but you'll find something to do instead of what the Lord told you to do. And I've noticed that the two most common options are we either just suck it up. That's what guys do. We'll just internalize it and we'll deal with it. And but we don't really deal with it because Jesus said we need to go and deal with it. Go to your brother who's offended you. The other thing people do is that, well, they'll start talking to others about it. That's why Jesus is clear in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him and tell you the fault or tell him the fault between you and him alone. You're supposed to try to restore the relationship, not bring a bunch of people in to build your case. And so he says, uh, if he sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, I remember years and years ago, and some of you know W.C. Fields. I mean, you don't know him personally, probably, but, but you've heard of him. He was a comedian, old school, very old school comedian. And someone saw him reading the Bible that didn't exactly gel with his character, at least what they knew of him. So they said, hey, what are you doing reading the Bible? And he said, looking for loopholes. And, uh, and, and so I think sometimes as we read, that, that happens to us. I read this and at first reading it says, if he repents, forgive him. And I'm like, cool, if he doesn't repent, I don't have to forgive him. I'm almost hoping he won't repent because I'm so mad and you know, but here's my problem and here's yours as well. We need to forgive even if he or she doesn't repent. And if he says, but it says if he repents, forgive him. Yeah, but it means repent. If he repents, then you forgive him and you restore him and you have a new right relationship with him. Here's why we have to forgive even if they don't repent. Unforgiveness, it leads to bitterness. It's like spiritual cancer. It eats you up. It defiles you from the inside out. And so, and you see it. Someone who lives with unforgiveness and, and stews on the offenses that have those things that have been done to them that were never reconciled, that were never put away. 
over time, you'll see it. It, it take a physical toll on them. You just see their face looks bitter or embittered. And so uh, you don't want that to happen to you. And that's not the reason you're going to do this. You're going to do this because Jesus says to do it. But let me just say, if we don't obey him, everything that follows is going to be worse. Not obeying the Lord is sin. And so we're just adding sin to their sin. So our brother sins against us. You can count on it, rebuke him. And then if he repents, forgive him. And by the way, this is so important. The Lord always forgives us when we come and we say, Lord, forgive me. He doesn't just command us to do this. These things Jesus began to do and teach. That's what we read early in our study of Luke. This is his pattern. He does it and then he commands us to do it. So he's not asking us to do something he won't do or hasn't done or doesn't continually do. And then he says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, what are you going to say? I don't believe you. No, that's not what he says. He says, you shall forgive him. And again, I have a problem in this area. I'll be honest. If someone sins against me seven times and one day they're related to me, no one else is going to get close <laughs> enough to sin against me again and again and again and again. You just don't let friends even do that. They don't have that kind of access. And so Jesus does say at one point, do you recall this, that your enemies may be those of your own household. I found this to be true, sadly, tragically. And so what it's saying is if they come, your brother, your sister, physically or spiritually, and they say, I repent, well, then you have to forgive. Well, what if they're insincere? Well, God will deal with them, but at least you'll have forgiven and he told you to do it. When you do the right thing, then at least you're not in sin. At least you're trusting the Lord. And, and that's really what's going on here. We're showing that, Lord, I, I feel like if I forgive this person, they're just going to take advantage of me again. Well, maybe they will. But the bottom line is you're pleasing the Lord by obeying the Lord. And, and so a couple of scriptures, some of my favorites. And by the way, if you're new to a study of scripture, it's fine to have favorite scriptures. Here's one of my favorites. Love covers a multitude of sins. I'm so grateful. Our Lord not only forgives us of sin, he cleanses our sin. He covers us so that that, well, he doesn't even remember our sins. That's an amazing thought. And, and by the way, that's the difference in forgiving and 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 for really, really forgiving. Really forgiving means we forget it. I don't think God can just say, well, I don't remember that. What he does is he chooses not to remember it, not to bring it up. He disregards it and he puts it away forever. And he's calling us to do the same thing. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And let me just say, and I'm not picking on you gals. I want to tell you, I believe God has graced women with amazing, incredible memories. And, and you can use those for good or evil. But uh, I love that I can ask my wife somebody's phone number. And, and it's like I haven't talked to him in 10 years, but she still knows the number. You know, I don't even know my own wife's phone number. And since I got a Blackberry, I mean, I used to know, but I got a Blackberry, so I don't need it. If this thing dies, I'm hopeless. You know, I'm like I'm looking for a cannon, hoping she's on the other side of the string. And and so the, the issue here is. That, that, well, women do sometimes remember what men so easily forget. I mean, here's the bottom line, gals, if you don't know. When a guy sins against you, your husband or your son or just your friend or a guy sins against another guy, 
the next day we can act as if it never happened. And, and by a week later, we don't even remember that it happened. That's just how we're wired. Now, you guys, you can not only remember what we did wrong today, but last week and two weeks ago and six months ago and five years ago and 20 years. And somehow they're all attached. Listen, <laughs> the Lord wants you not to do that. I'm, I'm saying this for your own good. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Yes, you're going to be sinned against, but deal with today's sin today and put yesterday's sin away. Why? Because it's enough to deal with today. And I know that, you know, if you're a parent, you're like, but it's a pattern. Well, don't we have that too? Don't we come to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. He doesn't say this is the fifth time now with this one. He never says it. He always forgives it. So love covers a multitude of sins. Love keeps no records of wrongs. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Well, the apostles' response to this is an interesting one. Let me, let me paraphrase it for you. We're going to need a lot more faith if we're going to pull that off, Lord. And, and, and so that's what they say to him. They say, increase our faith. And the Lord's response to this, well, beyond interesting. He's going to say, you got all the faith you need. What you need to do is make sure that faith is in me and then demonstrate that faith by obedience. The Lord says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots, be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, listen, let me save you a lot of trouble. I got to tell you, though, I believe everything Jesus says, I don't believe this is something you'll be able to pull off. And here's why you go. You say to the mulberry tree, be cast up and fall into the sea. Here's why it doesn't happen. That's not the will of God. Now, if you go and do it and say, hey, guess what? It worked. Fine. And I'm happy to hear it. But he's just saying you don't need very much faith to accomplish great things for him. And you don't need a lot of faith to forgive because you're being forgiven all the time. And he's commanding you to forgive. And, and so he says, they're saying, hey, we need more faith. Increase our faith. He's saying, hey, if you have mustard seed faith, little teeny bit of faith, but in him and you demonstrate that faith by obedience to him. And that's always how faith in Jesus is demonstrated. Faith is always going to work. That's the theme, by the way, of the book of James. We'll be looking at Wednesday. Faith works. It's faith first. And then it's works that are works of faith and are acceptable to the Lord. But, but here's his thing. He's telling them, you've got the faith you need. Put your faith in me. It's not how much, it's where that faith is placed and how that faith is demonstrated. Hebrews 11 again and again says by faith and it says Abel and it tells us that he, he um, you know, offered a more excellent sacrifice than, than Cain. Why? Because he offered by faith and, and he offered a blood sacrifice. Enoch walked with God and was not. Why? He walked by faith. Abel, uh, I mean, Abraham went out and wandered and waited and, and well, he did it all by faith. But in every case, God gives a command. We respond in obedience to that command. That's what faith is all about. Well, he gives us an illustration of this in the next few verses. He illustrates this point saying, which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I've eaten and drunk. And afterwards, um, 
you will eat and drink. Does he think that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? Uh, oh, does he thank, excuse me, that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you've done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, the word unprofitable here is unfortunate because unprofitable to us means useless or worthless. But the suggestion here is that that the one who's done all he was supposed to do hasn't gone beyond his obligation or duty. And, and that's really all he's saying. I forgive you, forgive them. Well, Lord, I need more faith. No, you don't. Just obey me. Well, okay. And, and, and I see it. This guy's plowing. He's tending sheep. He knows how to cook. I mean, this is a great servant. He's a faithful servant. But he's a servant who's only done what was expected of him. By the way, remember, and we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees are going to chime in. They're listening. These are the ones who think they're better than everyone else because of the things they do and the things they don't do. Because of their do-do and their don't do. And, and, and uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a play on words, but there's, there's a biblical basis for it. Paul says, I count all those things dung. And he's talking about all he actually did that set him apart and made him feel superior. He says, I realize none of that was reality. That was just me thinking I was more spiritual when real spirituality isn't just doing something. It's doing what Jesus tells us to do. Well, he goes on to, to remind us then uh, that, that not only does he forgive, but he cleanses. And we have a glorious illustration of the need for cleansing and the results of cleansing in verses 11 on. It happened as he went to Jerusalem. He passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. So he's on his way down to Jerusalem, but he's got to go through, well, these are in the north, Samaria and Galilee, primarily Gentile territory. The Samaritans, they were a mixed breed of the Assyrians who had conquered them and other people the Assyrians brought in and the, the Jews who'd been living there in the north. And, and so the 10 tribes, we know them as Israel. The two in the south, we know them as Judah. And so he's passing through Gentile territory primarily. And it says, as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off. They lifted their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. 10 lepers. Luke just kind of records it, but you need to know that in that day, no diagnosis could be more devastating. This disease was the most dreaded disease of the day. It disfigured and disabled you physically. It separated and isolated you socially. It defiled you spiritually. You had to stay away from anyone and everyone except another leper. And when they saw someone coming down the street, well, they were supposed to cross the street and cover their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine the, the devastation of finding out you had leprosy? And the worst of all, though, and you never would think this, is that leprosy wasn't painful. In fact, the biggest problem with leprosy wasn't the disfigurement or the social isolation or the spiritual separation. It was that 
Leprosy first numbed your nerve endings and then eventually destroyed them. So if you've seen pictures of lepers, you, you see them and their, their fingers are worn down to the knuckles or, or down to nubs up here and their noses are worn off. And, and you think, man, that disfigurement, that's not the disease. That's not. What happens is that the, the lack of sensitivity, the inability to feel pain would cause a leper to do something we would never do. Do you know if you put your hand near heat, you don't have to think, oh, that's really hot. I should pull my hand away. God has so wired you. It's called an involuntary reflex. He's wired you so you'll pull your hand away and say, whoo, that was hot. Because before you can think and process, you've already responded. But what would happen if that nerve ending was numbed or destroyed? Well, you could put your hand in the fire or on a hot plate and you wouldn't know you'd done it until you smelled the searing flesh. Such was the case of a leper, you see. And so it's a devastating disease. And there's a clear spiritual parallel because sin does in our lives everything leprosy did in their lives. It disfigures and disables us. I already mentioned unforgiveness. You see someone who's really bitter. They look bitter. It becomes permanently etched on their face. Now, I realize it takes time. But you don't want to let that happen to you. It separates and isolates you because when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about separation. The real meaning of death is separation. As the, the body without the spirit is dead, we read. In James, faith without works is dead. What's he saying? That here's how you know you're dead. The spirit has left the body physically. That's how other people know you're dead. You'll know you're dead too, but that's how they'll decide it. And, and, and then the, the issue is, it's the same thing spiritually. It's, it's you alienated from God, that spiritual death. And sin always brings death. The wages of sin is death. So there's always separation. There's always isolation when we sin. And then it just tracks through the whole thing. We're defiled, unfit for worship, for service, for fellowship. So we don't enjoy any of those things. Once more, sin does just the same thing leprosy does, and it does it in the same way. It numbs us, and then it destroys our ability to feel the pain of sin. You know, the scripture actually talks about those who've had their conscience seared with a hot iron. That idea, you, you know that, that uh, if you were out in the wilderness, or maybe you don't know, if you're out in the wilderness and you have an open wound, you can cauterize that wound by, by getting something really hot and putting it on it. It's going to be painful, but it will stop the bleeding. It will, it, it will you know, protect that, that person. And, but but here, here's the issue. Our conscience is supposed to give us pain when we sin. Or when we don't do what we're supposed to do. And God calls sins of omission, sins of commission. But, but people often, they, they well, are guilty of, and perhaps you've been uh, guilty of ignoring your conscience. And, and you know that, that, that you feel it, you know it, and, and it's a dangerous thing to do. I remember someone years ago using the illustration that when we sin and then we're convicted, but we don't repent, it's like we're callousing our heart. And, and you know what it is to work in the garden and build up those calluses. In the garden, the callus is a good thing. But a callus on your heart or on your conscience, that's a very dangerous thing. And so this idea of being um, unprotected because I'm not feeling the pain that's supposed to be associated with 
well, this activity or that attitude or, or this, well, whether we're talking physically or spiritually, the issue's the same. Today, let's be thankful for our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Our faith is a gift, and quite a gift, and it is through that faith that we are saved. In 1 Corinthians 12, 9, we are told that faith is a gift of the Spirit. And down in verse 11 of the same chapter, we're told that the Spirit's gifts are distributed to each of us as He wills. When we think of all the things that our faith does for us, we cannot help but see it may be one of the greatest gifts we have ever been given. So, take a few moments today, and while you're being thankful for all the things that you have to be thankful of, thank the Lord for your faith. And if, in this season, you struggle to find things to be thankful for, you can be thankful for your faith. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.